If you would go ahead now and take out your Bibles. Let's look again. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Book of Romans, chapter 8. As you turn there, let me remind you what Paul is doing in these verses that we are now studying. Verses 5 through 8 of Romans 8. And just so that we're very clear, I want to be explicit about what Paul is not doing in these four verses. In verses 5 through 8, Paul is not contrasting a more spiritual Christian with a less spiritual Christian. Or, as it has been put in decades past, Paul is not in these verses contrasting a spiritual Christian with a carnal Christian. Have you ever heard anybody speak that way? Have you ever heard anybody talk about the carnal Christian? Uh, This was something that was popular some decades ago when uh, some holding to what we call dispensationalism taught that you could have Jesus as your Savior without having Jesus as your Lord. These people taught that there is such a thing as a Christian who believes on Jesus and is saved, but that person doesn't truly turn from his or her sins, continues in their sins, not submitting to Christ. They argued that these Christians who did repent and leave off their sinful lifestyles and began following the ways of Jesus, these were the more spiritual Christians. And that those Christians who believed on Jesus but didn't really follow Jesus, well, they were carnal Christians. But in their view, as long as they believed, they were Christians. I want to suggest to you that the Bible knows nothing of a truly carnal Christian. It knows nothing of a faith in Jesus that does not include real repentance and real submission to Jesus as Lord. In these verses that we are about to read, Paul is contrasting those who are carnal, that is, those who are of the flesh, With those who are of the Spirit. But these are not two kinds of Christians. This is unbeliever and believer. Paul is contrasting here the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. If you are a Christian, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. And you are turning from sin. And you are submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are striving to obey Him. And that's the tenor of your life. Yes, you fall down. You sin sometimes. The battles are hard. You make mistakes. But the general tone of your life is that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not true of you, then you are in the flesh. And in the flesh is not a lesser kind of Christian. In the flesh is you're not a Christian at all. You need to truly know what it is to humble yourself like a little child 
and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verses 5 through 8 are not about two different kinds of Christians. It's about non-Christian and Christian. Let's read what Paul says. Let's begin reading in verse 1 so that we remember the context. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Stop. All right, so so far, Paul has been talking about the gospel. He's been talking about what God has done to save sinners. God condemned sin in the flesh. That is, the person of Jesus Christ on the cross was condemned for sinners. But dear church, who did God do this for? For whom did Christ die? Who can now say, I have no condemnation? That's what Paul tells us at the end of verse 4. See it again, end of verse 4. For us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So as we said last week, Paul is very clear here. This is one way that we can know whether we are saved or not. Here is how we can know whether Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death have been applied to our account before God. Here is a way for you to know whether you are a born again believer at peace with God, headed towards heaven. Are you one who walks according to the flesh? Or are you one who walks according to the spirit? Now, in verses 5 through 8, Paul is helping us to see the difference between these two kinds of people. Unsaved according to the flesh, saved according to the Spirit. Do you know which one you are? Verses 5 through 8 are a mirror to help us look at ourselves to see, who am I? Which one of these is me? And so let's begin in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, last Sunday we looked at these verses and we saw what they teach us about the unsaved person. We we unpacked Paul's words about what it means to live according to the flesh. Well, on this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day, we are looking at what does Paul, how does Paul describe the Christian? How does Paul describe the person who lives according to the Spirit? This must be us if we're to have reason to believe we're headed for heaven. And dear friends, 
If what we're about to see this morning, what we're about to see this evening, if this is true of us, we are richly blessed. These verses that we're going to be looking at ought to be deeply encouraging to us if we find that they are true of us. And so we're going to look together at how Paul describes the spiritual person, the Christian. But we must begin here. For unpacking what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit, we must begin with the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? I can't know what it means to walk according to the Spirit unless I have a good understanding of who the Spirit is. And for many Christians, that's exactly where they are. That is, they they don't know how to think about the Holy Spirit. You see, there are these two opposite ditches we can fall into when talking about the Holy Spirit. And on on one side is is the ditch of those Christians who come from perhaps a more charismatic background, a Pentecostal or an Assemblies of God background. These are our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But they do often have what I would say is a false or unbalanced teaching concerning the Holy Spirit. A teaching that majors on the minors. That is, they focus a great deal On the smaller works of the Spirit. But they have very little to say about the major works of the Spirit. It's like the Corinthians in the New Testament. These Christians in Corinth, they loved to talk about their spiritual gifts. In fact, the people at Corinth, they were in love with these extraordinary gifts. Prophecy, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings. And for some people, when they first think about the Holy Spirit, that's the first thought that comes into their minds. These extraordinary gifts of prophecy or or speaking in tongues. And I would suggest that that is a ditch, that that's not the road we're supposed to be on. And I would suggest it's a ditch on one hand, because as we've studied before, these extraordinary gifts that some make such a to-do about, aren't even gifts that we should be expecting from the Spirit today. Uh, We've seen in the Bible before that these were part of the foundational era of the church. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2.20. And Church, I would suggest that while I don't know how long it is until Jesus comes back, I don't think we're still in the foundational era of the church. I think we're near the end. I think the church is almost built. But second, even if those gifts were available today, those are simply not the main things that we should think about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Those gifts were wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Prophecy and tongues and healing, they were mightily used by God in the first century to do many things to establish the church, to win people to Christ, to give a hearing to the gospel. But those extraordinary gifts are not the central thing that the Holy Spirit does. They are not the main things we should think of when we think of the Holy Spirit. But that's one ditch. Then there's this other ditch. And I wonder if maybe some of us are more prone to fall in this other ditch. And that is the ditch of not knowing what to think about the Spirit at all. This is the ditch about, of, of being so nervous about things like tongues and healing and prophecy that we don't, we don't want to think about the Spirit. We're, 
I had a friend who's an unbeliever encourage me one time to preach a sermon series called Who's Afraid of the Holy Ghost? Right? Because that's the way many people are. Is that us? Are we so overly cautious that we don't even want to think about who the Holy Spirit really is? Certainly among many Baptists, this has been the more common danger. The danger of remaining uninformed about the Holy Spirit. We're called to walk according to the Holy Spirit. And He's a big mystery to us. Now, if we're among those who have fallen into the first ditch, the one that focuses mainly on the extraordinary gifts, then if we read the end of verse 4 that way, we might understand it in an erroneous way. We might say, well, if a Christian is someone who walks according to the Spirit, then this must mean that a Christian is someone who prophesies or speaks in tongues or has these extraordinary gifts evident in their lives. And certainly there have been some in the extreme charismatic wing of Christianity who have said that very thing, specifically that if you've never spoken in tongues, you've never received the Spirit of God. I would suggest Paul has nothing like that in mind at the end of verse 4. But if we're on this side, if we're those who have fallen into the ditch of being afraid of the Holy Spirit, of being ignorant about who the Holy Spirit is, then we read the end of verse 4 and we don't have any idea what it means at all. Uh, Paul speaks of believers walking according to the Spirit and all that comes to our minds is a giant question mark. Now I can't stop our study of Romans 8 and do a whole series on who the Holy Spirit is. Maybe that's a series we'll do on another occasion. Really, we don't need to do that. Because the rest of Romans 8 is going to tell us a great deal about the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is about life in the Spirit. And so as we work our way through this chapter, hopefully some of our uh, errors, our, our misnotions about the Spirit will be corrected by the Word of God. But I will say that one of my great hopes is that we will come to the end of Romans 8 and we will find that we are more in love with the Spirit of God more thankful for the Spirit of God, more eager to honor the Spirit of God for His work in our lives than we have ever been before. And remember that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God. And so as we study the Spirit's work, I pray that we will come away more in love with the Trinity, with the full Godhead, than we have ever been before. But to make sure that we're in a good place, not only for the rest of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, but for the rest of Romans 8, I do want to make four points about the Holy Spirit this morning. Four biblical truths about the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what it means to walk according to the Spirit. And the first is this. The Holy Spirit is God. And I would suggest to you, by the way, that that's the very first thing you should think of when you think about the Holy Spirit. He is God. Don't think first about His works. Don't think first about His gifts. Think first about His divinity. A passage that makes this very clear is Acts chapter 5, in which we have a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they have been dishonest. And in verse 3 of Acts 5, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Next verse. You have lied not to men, but to God. Ananias, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead. Part of that great trinity. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he. He is a person of the Godhead. Every attribute of God in general is an attribute of the Holy Spirit in particular. So when we describe God as all-knowing or God as all-wise or God as all-powerful, those things are all true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pure and He is perfect and He is holy in every way. The Holy Spirit fills all places at all times. The Holy Spirit never changes. He is forever faithful. He is marked by justice and righteousness, mercy and grace. The Holy Spirit is full of steadfast love for God's people. Friends, the Holy Spirit is God and He is fully God. And He is therefore worthy of your reverence, worthy of your awe, worthy of your love. He is God. The second thing to say about the Holy Spirit is that He loves to exalt the Father and the Son. And this really is the very next thing to say. Because when you look at the Scriptures, everything that the Spirit does is to honor the Father and the Son. The Spirit is not aching for the the spotlight. The Spirit is not the member of the Godhead who says, look at me, look at me, look at me. The Holy Spirit is mightily at work to bring praise to the name of Jesus for the glory of God the Father. This is why 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, No one ever speaking in the Spirit of God can ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. In other words, one great evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life or the lack of it is what you can say from the heart about Jesus. If you can say from the heart, let Jesus be damned, let Jesus be accursed, the Holy Spirit has done little of grace in your life. But if you can say from the heart, May Jesus be praised. May Jesus be loved. May Jesus be honored. That's the work of the Spirit who loves to bring praise to Jesus. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures, which are all about Christ. The Spirit empowers evangelism and missions, which proclaims the glory of Christ. The Spirit opens the eyes of sinners so that they can see. See what? Christ. To behold the glory of Christ. It is the Spirit who gives people new hearts. Why? So that they can love Christ. The Spirit works to sanctify Christians so that they will be more like Christ. The Holy Spirit is Christocentric. He is centered on Christ. And since every time Christ is honored, it brings joy and glory to the Father of whom Jesus is the image We can also say that the Spirit is theocentric. The Father is at the center of the Spirit's work in life. 
Everything that the Spirit does is to exalt the Father and the Son. Number three. A third truth we should always keep central when we think about the Holy Spirit is this. It is the Spirit who actually brings the salvation God has provided to us. It is the Spirit who brings the salvation God has provided to us. You want to think about the works of the Spirit? Don't go straight to tongues or prophecy. Go straight to this. It is the Spirit who moved someone to speak the gospel to you. It is the Spirit who gave you ears to hear and eyes to see. It was the Spirit who gave you a new heart that was willing to believe. He irresistibly compelled you with visions of Christ as a wonderful Savior for your sins. It was the Spirit who did this. He drew you to Christ. And when you believed on Christ, all that Christ accomplished on the cross was applied to you. Jesus accomplished redemption. But it is the Spirit who applies redemption to your soul. Dear friend, if it were not for the Spirit of God, you would not know God. You would not love God. You would not trust God. Were it not for the Spirit of God, you would still be spiritually dead. It is the Spirit that made you alive. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, when you think about the activity of the Holy Spirit, when you think about the works of the Holy Spirit, here is the miracle that He did in your life, which was far greater than the creation of the world. He changed you at the very core of your soul. He turned a God-hater into a God-lover. He made you a new creation. For that reason, we ought to be eternally grateful. To the Holy Spirit. He has made us new. And this surpasses everything else. Well the fourth and final point to make about the Holy Spirit. That I think should be central is this. It is the Holy Spirit who at this very moment. Sustains our souls. And helps us to grow and mature. It is the Holy Spirit who at this moment is sustaining your faith in Christ, keeping you believing, keeping you holding on to the promises, keeping you from falling away. And it is the Spirit who is growing you up, maturing you, helping you become like Jesus. The Christian life is a life in which the Spirit of God is always with us, dwelling in our very souls. The Holy Spirit has made His abode in us. He has he made us temples to God. And every good desire you have, every God-honoring word that comes out of your mouth, every God-honoring thought that runs through your mind, that is the present work of the Spirit in your life. Did you want to come to church this morning? And did you want to come for good, God-honoring reasons? then that was the Holy Spirit at work in your life. If you're understanding and believing the truths that you're hearing me preach this moment, and if these truths resonate with your soul, that is the Spirit of God at work in your life. Have you already found that there was a moment this morning when you could have been impatient or unkind or selfish And you weren't. (laughs) You held back. 
You found something compelling you to be loving or gracious instead. Well, dear friend, that was the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is your daily companion. He is sculpting you slowly but surely into the image of Christ. He's making you fit for heaven. He's making you ready for your eternal home. So, when we read that a Christian is someone who walks according to the Spirit, these are the very first things I would suggest that should come to your mind. The Spirit is God. He honors the Father and the Son. He opened our eyes and made us alive in Christ. He sustains us and grows us up in the faith. And if you understand that, then even before you look at the particulars of verses 5 through 8, you already know something about what it means to walk according to the Spirit. Don't you? If the Holy Spirit is God, then to walk according to the Spirit is to walk according to the principles of God. It is to walk according to God's holy commands. If the Holy Spirit is God, you can't say you're walking according to the Spirit while you're living in disobedience to God because the Holy Spirit is God. So you already know walking according to the Spirit must mean a life of obedience to God, a life of submission to God, a life walking according to the principles of God. And if you know that the Holy Spirit does everything to exalt the Father and to exalt the Son, what does it mean for you to walk according to that? Does it not mean that your life is to be lived with a desire to exalt the Father and to exalt the Son? A spiritual person is a person who lives for the glory of God and the honor of Christ. Do not say, I'm walking according to the Spirit if you belittle the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belittle the person or the work of God. Third, if the Spirit of God is the one who actually makes people new, opens their eyes, gives them faith, saves souls, then what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Does it not mean to live with that same intention in your life? A Christian is someone who cares about the building of Christ's church, the winning of souls, the great work of evangelism and missions, the building of the kingdom, the number one thing happening on planet earth today. The Christian is in on it. The Spirit is doing it and we want to be a part of it. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about the salvation of the lost. To walk according to the Spirit is to walk according to the One whom Jesus has sent out in power since the day of Pentecost to say, gather in My people from all over the world. Are you living according to that Spirit? Is that missionary zeal in you? And finally, if the Holy Spirit is He who is at work this very moment to grow you up, to mature you in Christ, then what does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Does it not mean that you're going to be joining with Him in that work rather than resisting Him in that work? If the Spirit of God is aiming to make us holy, then a Christian is someone who wants to be holy. A Christian is someone who is taking steps to become holy. 
holy. A Christian will prove that the Spirit of God is in him or her by being hungry for holiness. We say, I love this sports team. And what do we start to do? We start wearing their jerseys. We start, you know, taking interest in the things they do. We were kids. We, we, I love Superman. And what did we do? I put on my Superman pajamas and my cape and I jumped off the steps. We love Jesus. Well, then what, don't you want to be like him? Don't you want to imitate his character? Don't you want his interest to be your interest and his loves to be your loves? The Spirit's goal is to make you like the Savior you love. If you don't have that desire, you don't know the Savior and you don't have the Spirit. But if you do, you are so blessed. You are so blessed. The Christian will cherish the Word of God. The Christian will cherish prayer. The Christian will cherish Christ's church. The Christian will be learning self-denial and developing the practice of submitting oneself to God in all things. Why? Because this is what it means to become holy. This is what it means to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit, not to resist the Spirit. And anyone who says, I have the Spirit, but is resisting the Spirit constantly, moving away from Christ-likeness rather than towards Christ-likeness, the evidence says otherwise. And by the way, the Christian doesn't just love the Bible and love prayer and love the church and love Christian fellowship. As a matter of duty, though it is a duty. No, the true Christian doesn't walk according to the principles of God for the glory of Christ, concerned for souls, pursuing holiness out of a sense of reluctant obligation. Well, I guess I'm supposed to care about these things. I guess I'm supposed to be doing these things. No, when the Spirit comes to dwell in you, His desires become more and more your desires. These things become close to your heart. These things are becoming natural to you. Duty is being transformed into delight. It is still duty, but it's not mere duty. More and more, you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You learn from Him. You strive to be holy. You strive to be a witness. You strive to exalt Christ. Why? Because it's become the passion of your soul. And Paul says in verse 6, by the way, that this is life and peace. This is a life. Of real life and real peace. So Mount Hermon, do you see how helpful this all is? The Bible does not leave us to ourselves to figure out whether we're in Christ or not. The Bible gives us so much help. Let us test ourselves according to these things. And if we find that we're still in the flesh and these things, they do not resonate with us. I could care less about exalting Christ. I could care less about the salvation of people. My heart's way over here in the stuff of the world than when you're in the flesh. And you need to run to Christ. But if you find that by the Spirit these things do matter to you. And that they are the, the umbrella overarching your whole life and all the various callings of your life. Be thankful. That means the Spirit's in you. That means something good has happened in you. That means Christ has saved you. And the more your life reflects that of a person living according to the Spirit, the more grounds you have for true biblical assurance. Don't we want assurance, church? Don't we want to be able to say, I know who I am. 
I know I'm a child of God. I know I'm going to heaven. That's where confidence comes from. That's where Christ-honoring, Christ-esteeming confidence comes from so that you can not be shaken to and fro by every trial of your life, by every false doctrine that comes your way. A life of joy and peace comes from living according to the Spirit in such a way that you have good grounds to say, I can see I'm a believer. The church around me sees I'm a believer. My friends can see in me that I'm a believer. When I begin to doubt, I can ask them. And they say, do you see this? Do you see that? That's the Spirit in you. This is where we'll get what we need if we're going to make a difference in this community, church. It isn't easy to help. It isn't easy to love people. We've got to have this. We've got to have an assurance grounded in reality if we're going to make a difference in this community. Now tonight, we're going to look at the particulars of verses 5 through 8. We're going to see that Paul says much about the kind of life of living according to the Spirit. But I want to end the way I began. There just isn't any middle ground here. One of of my professors in college was a dispensationalist who held to the carnal Christian view. He was a dear and godly man. He just wanted there to be some middle ground. He wanted there to be some middle ground for the person who says, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm still so in love with my sin. But dear friends, I, I don't see any middle ground. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Either at the core of who you are, self has your allegiance, or Christ has your allegiance. Where is your allegiance? Humble yourself and trust Christ. Follow Him. That's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. May it be true of us. Let's pray.